Welcome to the Generations United podcast, where we share insights from experts from the intergenerational field about how these practices improve the lives of children, youth, and older adults, as well as the communities that they live in. I'm your host, Donna Butts, Executive Director of Generations United. I'm really, really delighted today to have as our guest, Anita Rogers. Anita has an incredible background, a really rich history in intergenerational work, in pioneering areas that I think you're going to find really, really fascinating. And we are so fortunate at Generations United because now Anita is a senior fellow with Generations United. So she's sharing her expertise and her gifts and just really, really helping, I think, to make the world a better place and to really strengthen our intergenerational work at Generations United. So we are most grateful. So welcome, Anita. Good to be here. What I thought would be really fun would be to start if you could begin by just telling our audience a little bit about your background and your journey, because it's really fascinating. I think that'll lead us into some of the things I know we want to talk about today. You know, my journey started in Neptune, New Jersey, where I was born. And when I was growing up, I attended an elementary school that was predominantly all black. And I never, I never even crossed my mind that it was predominantly all black because that's what it was. And we lived in a black enclave, a black middle-class enclave. And then when I went to high school, the high school was predominantly white. And what struck me then was, and I did really well, what struck me then was I was a token in high school. I was the only black in the National Honor Society. I was the only black cheerleader. I was the only black on this and the only black on that. But what really, really also struck me was my mother said, believe that you should not be the only one. You were chosen, but there are other people, there are other African-American children in your class and students that should also be with you in some of these activities. So she tried to make sure that my head didn't get so big that I was thought I was so special that I should be the only one because I was not the only one that deserved some of those accolades. And one of the things that reminded me of high school that really kind of set the tone for helping me think outside the box was a course that I had on propaganda. Now, this was way, way back. Mm -hmm. And then propaganda told me how to look at anything and see other sides of it. And that kind of generated my issue for conflict resolution and that there are more than two sides, there are three sides, there are four sides. And sometimes there's nothing that one side is wrong. Sometimes one side really is wrong, let me be really clear. But to look at how the other person is experiencing something. And then when I went to college, I joined the Black Student Union. And so that was my kind of coming out in the Black Student Union and, you know, Black power and the revolution shall not be televised. I cut all my hair. I had a huge Angela Davis bush and I thought I was just so relevant. <laughs> I bet it was beautiful, Anita. Well, I don't know. But and then I end up marrying a young man from the Black Student Union. And we end up living in a commune whose dedication was to fight and help the Black struggle. So we had people coming in and out of the house all the time. And that was just a real interesting dynamic. So that's a, a little bit of my background from growing up. But I've kind of worked in almost and written grants and projects for almost any kind of social ill that you can think of, whether it's HIV and AIDS, 
people coming back from incarceration, women with mental health issues, children leaving foster care. So it's been a journey. And I never considered myself an activist. I considered myself a person who did things to help people who needed help. And I think we're all activists, to be perfectly honest, or we all can be activists. I agree with you. I think that we all can be and we all need to be, especially in times like this. Your story, what you're describing is so inspirational, and it really shows how that personal experience really sparked the passion that you continue to have to this day. So do you feel like that experience, both when you were growing up and then as a young adult, really did encourage your interest and involvement in civil rights? I think it did. And I think of civil rights as much broader than walking, doing a march, writing letters. Civil rights should be your day-to-day activities that advance the righteousness and the rights of all people. And so when I write or when I was in my primary work as a grant writer, I spent a lot of time writing grants for organizations that did not have the wherewithal to get funds to move their agenda forward in order for people to have justice. And so we weren't talking about racial justice kind of way back then, kind of like it's talked about. We didn't talk about DI, diversity, equity, inclusion. We didn't have all those words. Our words were like, can we help a person be uplifted? And if they're African-American, what do they need to be uplifted? What kind of tools do they need? What kind of supports do they need to be uplifted? And That's why it was so important for me to join the Martin Luther King Association for Nonviolence. And I was its first executive director that was commissioned by Coretta Scott King back in the late 1980s. And so that was an amazing experience. I met luminaries from the history books, and I met what they call foot soldiers, people you never hear about. But the luminaries could have never done their job unless the foot soldiers did their job to support them. So it's really been quite a journey and you have such a great perspective. I just can't, I mean, what an incredible honor to have been the first leader of the center to have worked with some of the people that you were able to work with. But when you think about the activist landscape, how has it changed since those early days leading up to today? I mean, are there differences and similarities when you think about this last year and Black Lives Matter, the whole movement and some of the things that have been occurring in the country? Do you see how the landscape has changed? Do you see differences and similarities? I see a lot of similarities. We used to talk about not necessarily Black Lives Matter, but Black Power which is very similar. Sometimes when people hear Black Lives Matter or Black Power, they think it's an exclusionary thing. It's not exclusionary. What it means is that Black Lives Matter and Black Power means that African-Americans, Black people deserve to have power and exercise it like anyone else. And they have been left out in terms of many things, in terms of the intergenerational cycle of disadvantage from slavery up until now. Now it's changed a little. And sometimes I tell some of the people that I know that have, put it this way, some of the African-American people that I know that have made it, I have to remind them where they came from and how they got there. And none of us should ever forget that we stand on the shoulders of other people. But even at that, We still have so far to go. And again, Black Lives Matter and Black Power is not exclusionary. 
it's really looking at how can African-Americans be included and be treated with equity like anyone else. I so agree with you, Anita, in terms of remembering the people who came before us and the sacrifices that they made, but also the leadership and the paths that they carved out for us in so many social movements, whether it's making sure that we're reconnecting generations, whether we're looking out and defending social insurance programs, it's knowing that people took those journeys, they made those sacrifices to get us where we are today. So we need to remember that. One of the joys I know that I feel, and I think that you do too, as people who are sort of becoming the elders along the way, is when you think back on yourself and those early days and that gorgeous Angela Davis afro, <laughs> um, what kind of advice or lessons would you share with young people today as they're early in their activist journeys? I want to share with both the young people and the older people, because sometimes I notice that in venues, whether it's a sorority or an association, is that the elders are resistant to allow the young people to be engaged and take charge. The elders should be mentoring them, maybe not a direct mentoring role, but should be advocating and helping them take charge. And so for young people, if the elders are not doing that, push it, say, listen, can you teach me? How do I do this? So there's a way to engage people without threatening them. And that's really, really important. I think that's a really important lesson for older adults, because one of the things I hear so often is there's such power in intergenerational connections and in intergenerational leadership. When we take the wisdom of our elders and the energy of our younger people and put that together, we can really do incredible things. But oftentimes, older adults in that scenario feel like they're the ones that have all of the wisdom. And so they will guide or they will really not give young people an opportunity to show their leadership, to share their wisdom and encourage that. So I don't know if you have any particular stories about when you've worked with younger and older people, encouraging them to really be involved in some of this activist work. Do you have any favorite story? Well, when I worked at Temple University Center for Intergenerational Learning, we had a project called Grandma's Kids. And it was an intergenerational project where we were working with grand families who are parenting a second time around. The grandparents were able to drop their children off to the after school program would be sponsored. But we want to go beyond that because sometimes you have to allow people, you must allow people to be together. And the best way to be together that I found work the best for intergenerational activities is to actually have a direct activity. Just don't come in the room and say, okay, so everybody talk to each other. No, it has to be kind of not forced, but have a kind of parameter around it. There was another group of people that I love that I work with from Grand Central, and they sponsored an intergenerational underground railroad trip from Canada down to the South. These were grand families that took this intergenerational trip. And it was eye-opening for the, not only for the grandparents again, because some of the stuff they read about or heard about, but they got to see the places and the children began to experience it with them. So it's so important to experience those things. And we also have to, our young people now, many of them do not know anything about the 1960s and the civil rights stuff. And they have the liberties they had now because of those people. I sponsored the Latter-day Freedom Rides out of Philadelphia. And we went to Selma, 
We walked over Edmund Pettus Bridge. We went to Montgomery, Alabama at the Dexter Church. And when we arrived, we arrived on a bus from the original Freedom Ride bus that I sponsored. Wow, that must have been amazing. It was amazing. But what was more amazing, when we pulled our bus up to the church, the person that was waiting for us in her limousine was Rosa Parks. Oh, wow. I will like never, ever forget that. My heart, the palpitations, my heart was just so full. And for the young people to see that person that jumps out of the textbook in real life Mm-hmm. was just an amazing experience. So providing experiences and not just textbook experiences, but showcasing those experiences for our young people and our old people is really important. And we are the elders, Donna. I'm sorry. We're not becoming the elders. But we are the elders. <laughs> and, and we embrace it. Yes. I think that we just, you know, it's that fearless elders <laughs> concept that It's an incredible stage in our lives. And to have the experience that you have is just tremendous. It's amazing. When you were talking about seeing Rosa Parks, it reminds me a little bit of how I felt when I would see John Lewis and think about his contributions and his history and the fact that he kept going. He just kept going. And that's sort of the message for all of us. And you have kept going in many ways. And one of the ways that you have been helping us a great deal at Generations United is that you recently authored our African-American toolkit for grand families. And we were delighted. We were very fortunate because the Kellogg Foundation supported us creating a toolkit about African-American grand families and a toolkit about Native American and Alaskan Native grand families. And our whole goal was to make sure that people recognized and honored some of the diversity and the strengths that there are in families. So I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the toolkit that you worked on and what do you think about the role that it plays in elevating the cultural strengths and helping organizations and others better support African-American grand families? I believe that most organizations who are serving grand families are well-intentioned and well-meaning but they don't always know those particular nuances of African-American families. And I wanna be really clear, all African-American families are not the same. There are some commonalities and some of it, for instance, one of the commonalities, one of the strengths, though not all African-Americans embrace this, is that so many African-Americans embrace their spirituality, their religion that came from the civil rights movement, but it always started in slavery. And that's how they were able to sustain themselves through prayer and religion. So if I'm a provider and my grandmother comes to me and says that I talked to Pastor Johnson and he said, you don't dismiss that. You embrace that and see how you can work with Pastor Johnson. I think one of the key places that provider agencies could be very effective in working with African-Americans is to partner with religious institutions, because they are already trusted in many of the communities. I think that's essential. The other thing is to look at those celebrations, whether it's Kwanzaa or family reunion, look at those celebrations that are important to many African Americans and let that be represented in your facility. Sometimes when you go to facilities, you don't see people that look like us or 
me <laughs> and have diversity, not just for African-Americans, for American Indians, for whatever your constituencies, represent that in how your facility looks and how you talk. And also, there's some particular things in terms of African-American elders. You know, when I was growing up, you could never call an elder or someone, an adult, by their first name. You could not say, oh, hi, Donna. No, hi, Miss Donna. It was a given. And so we're more casual now, but you should always ask permission for that. So the African-American Toolkit provide guidance and gave some special insight into the African-American community, even in something like colorism. There's some intra-African-American conflicts in terms of color, whether you're light-skinned, brown-skinned, dark-skinned, and there has always been some trepidation and some conflicts among light-skinned, dark skin, medium skin. And sometimes I even noticed when I was working with grandparents, some grandparents actually treated their grandchildren differently based on the color of their skin. That was not ordinary, but it did happen. So one needs to be mindful of that. And even in terms of now, there's a book called The Crown. The Crown is about how you wear your hair. And so hairstyles have really evolved differently than when I was growing up, but the crown looks at all the different types of hairstyles. And now there's legislation looking at allowing women of color to wear their hair however they need to wear their hair and not being discriminated because of their hair. And one organization that I would like to recommend for our listeners is Asala. And Asala was started by Carter G. Woodson, who was an historian, and he's actually considered the founder of Black history. And Asala is the Association for the Study of African-American Life, and it is all over this country. And so many people do not know about it. Where I live in Sarasota, Florida, it has the largest contingency and membership in the country but there are many across the country. And I think that would be a very good start for people to learn more about their history. We'll make sure, Anita, that there's a link or some information about that when we post this podcast. So I really appreciate that recommendation. I do have to say, though, when you started talking about crowns, what I immediately went to was one of my favorite books, which is also called Crowns. And it's about African-American women and their church hats. Yes. Because hats are just glorious. And anyone who knows me knows I love hats. And I don't think there's anything more beautiful than that book and the photos and the stories, as well as the play, the musical that was made as a result of that book. Those kind of stories and understanding, you know, the power of whether it's the hair or the headdress is wonderful. So thank you. You know, one of the things that we struggle with, Anita, and I just wonder if you have any thoughts about it, is sometimes we struggle with the inclusiveness or perhaps lack of diversity in some of the intergenerational programs and work around the country. And one of the things that we've learned is we may call it intergenerational programming, but to other people, it's just the way that you live. And it's the way that, as you said, that elders are treated, the role that elders have, the honor that they have, and the trust that they have to connect and pass on tradition and learning to a younger generation. So I just wondered if you had any suggestions or ideas for Generations United, but also for the whole field about how we make sure that we're intentionally 
thinking about honoring what may not be a traditional programming or bringing programs that may look different into the fold? Well, I think you've done a really good job with the grand voices because the grand voices allows those voices of kinship caregivers to inform you about what's going in outside of Washington, D.C. So I think that's important. But also it's very important for other places like Generations United or whatever to make the assumption that you are experts, but you're not the only expert. And there are experts who did not go to college, but they can inform you. And whenever someone enters the community, in the African-American tradition, sometimes we said, we have to find out who's the godmother and who's the godfather of that community. Because if we don't touch base with them to do our service, we may be dead in the water. And sometimes organizations assume they know best for a city, for an agency, but they need to pay homage to the people who've been in that community for a long time and listen to their suggestions and incorporate them into whatever activity that they are planning. That's really wise advice, Anita. And when you mentioned grand voices, I want to make sure that our listeners know that grand voices are grandparents and other relatives raising children that we've had really the honor of working with to help elevate their voices so that they can talk and advocate for their families and for grandparents in general. And I think the grand voices have been really, really powerful. And we're very grateful that you've been involved with that work as well. So as we wind down, I wonder, Anita, if there's anything that you want to share as far as your current work or any advice or guidance that you might offer in terms of you know, how do we make sure that some of what's underway today in terms of how people are thinking about race and equity, how can it be sustained, not be a passing thing? How do you feel that we and that others can play a role in making sure that any gains aren't lost? I think it's important while we have grand voices, I don't think we have enough voices from the young people who are in the grand families. We don't have like a dedicated network for the grandchildren who can share their experiences. They have insight, they have feelings, they know what happened to them, how it happened to them, and that could inform us how we move forward for both policy and programs. So I would like to see the development of some kind of format that we can harness the voices of the grandchildren being raised by grandfamilies. I think that would be so powerful. The other thing is that Black history is American history. And we're in Black History Month, but Black history and any history should be all year round. So I would like for us to really begin to allow or provide for our children more opportunities to learn more about their history. It was interesting. Sometimes our current children don't even know when they're being discriminated against when they go into a store. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> because I've heard story after story after story from young people, young Black people and young Hispanic people, that when I go into a store, they follow me. Hmm. And it's the kinds of things we need to teach our young people and our grandfamilies need to be facile with how to keep their young people safe because they need to be able to live another day. 
Mm-hmm. And there is disparity in the justice system, but we can talk about disparity, we can address it. But in the meantime, we have to teach our children to survive and what they need to do in order to survive so they can live another day and have a future. That seems like a really, really important point, but also important scope of work that needs to make sure that it stays on people's horizons. Because we have been, in many ways, so focused on our work with our grand network, with our grand families. And we know that those voices of young people and making sure that young people have that you know, sense of roots and sense of strength that comes from family, strength that comes from their sense of self. We need to make sure that we're supporting that as well. So I really appreciate that. And maybe, Donna, we could, I'm freelancing now. <laughs> we, we could, Not you. <laughs> I'm always freelancing. We can maybe even think of, we have our senior fellows, but maybe we can pilot a program with our youth fellows. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be great because I do think it takes all of the ages and it takes people at every age and stage of life to really work together to make a difference. When you were talking earlier, I was reminded of, I think it was an informal intergenerational program that I loved. And that's when Freedom Riders went back to the South and went on campuses and worked with young students to organize, to register people to vote and could share their stories, similar to what you were saying with so much of your experience. So there's something that everyone can do. And you're really an inspiration because you have done so much and you continue to do so much, Anita. We're really, really grateful for you. I thank you. And I would like to leave you with a quote from President Barack Obama, who says, change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. That's wonderful. And that's you. Well, that's you too, Donna. Anita, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your history, your wisdom, but also I think really challenging all of us to think about the future, about how much there still is to do. And I, for one, am just very grateful that we're doing it together. So thank you. And I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Donna, for the work that you do to make the difference in the lives of families across this country. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd also like to thank our listeners today for joining us. I hope that you were as inspired by the conversation with Anita Rogers as I was. It was just wonderful to hear. And I'd also encourage you to check out the resources that we were talking about, the African-American Toolkit for Grand Families, the Native American Alaskan Indian Toolkit for Grand Families. And this year, we're working on one for Latinx families. Because as Anita said, we need to understand and value the differences, but realize that oftentimes there's some commonality as well. But we want to make sure that we're respecting the strengths of people's history, of their culture, and where they are today. So Anita, thank you again for joining us. I'd like to ask the audience to please leave a review of the podcast at Apple Podcasts or other streaming platforms. We're really glad that you joined us. We're hoping that this will reach people that we haven't touched before. So by sharing the Generations United podcast, by leaving what we hope will be a high rating on the podcast, that helps us get the word out. And most of all, remember that if you don't have someone young in your life, find someone. And if you don't have someone older in your life, find someone. We really are better and stronger together. Thank you.